thank you for having me here. What a nice introduction. And um, it's nice to be at the center. I'm from Berkeley. And every time I come down here, I'm always so happy to be in Gil's Sangha. Gil's been my teacher for many years. Um, so I wanted to talk this morning about um, being a volunteer at the tsunami and what was so extraordinary about that experience after my time in Thailand uh, meditating and having a, a crisis and a tragedy like that happen in a Buddhist country. Um, there's many angles I could talk about the tsunami, you know, being uh, from a Buddhist angle, which I'll talk about this morning, and then, of course, from a psychological angle, I'm a psychologist and what all the, what was happening to people in the midst of that tragedy. And then um, there was a whole political angle that was going on with um, countries, you know, trying to vie for damage control and, and uh, putting a spin on what was going on. And then uh, my experience uh, observing what the Israeli team, the forensic team was doing in terms of helping people uh, worldwide identifying bodies through forensic methods and what that was like. Um, what was, I, I actually had just come back from India the day of the tsunami and I was up in the north with my husband and a few days later decided to fly down to Phuket and I was instructed to go to the uh, main hospital in Phuket which is a pretty uh, snazzy facility um, basically designed for Westerners uh, who go there, uh, who are on vacation or to go to what they call a new category of medicine. I'd never heard of it before, health medicine, where you can go get an inexpensive facelift or, or many things that you could do in Thailand much, much less expensively than you can do in the United States or anywhere in the world. Um, and when I arrived at the Bangkok Phuket Hospital, which is in Phuket, uh, which is a favorite destination of everybody around the world. Um, you know, it was just pure chaos. I could barely get through the lobby there. And most of the people in the lobby uh, were Westerners from all over the world, basically looking at um, pictures that were being downloaded off the computers. And there was a bank of computers that was set up in the lobby, pictures of, of bodies that uh, were being taken and being downloaded every two hours. And so the survivors and the people who would come in around the world to look, with their, look, look for their family members were, were you know, very mindfully looking at every picture, and which there were, you know, at that point, thousands, you know, thousands coming down. And, they, um, and so people were sitting there with a pad and pencil and, and writing down numbers that they thought could be, you know, their loved ones. The people who were there with their loved ones and, and separated, of course, uh, most of the time knew what, what, knew what the person was wearing and could see that on the computer. A lot of people who came from around the world, of course, didn't know that and were working more on jewelry and scars and moles, which were ta where pictures were taken separately. So the whole lobby, which was quite enormous, of a major hospital also was just plastered wall to wall with pictures and descriptions of, of victims in hopes that they would be recognized. Um, I then approached the volunteer table 
and identified myself as a psychologist and to which I got this extraordinary reception of like, you know, they were just so um, happy because there really weren't any um, psychologists on the scene. Thailand, Thailand is a Buddhist country. So most of the, you know, the, the Thais use the monks as their spiritual refuge, spiritual refuge. You know, and most Westerners weren't Buddhists. And, you know, their reference to a tragedy, not just you know, relating to it from a medical point of view, but they respond to psychologists, right? You know, because that, that's our system here. Because we're a more psychological society and, 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 um, in Thailand, it's a spiritual society, so that's where the Thais were going. So I was taken up, and I know a little Thai, because I've lived there for so long, but I basically know monastery Thai, not hospital Thai, but I was able to, and most of the personnel there spoke enough English, and I spoke enough Thai where we could relay, but you know, I, I, it was interesting, because it was a Western hospital, but when people are under stress, they 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 fall back on their native tongue. You know what I mean? Because the stress level you can imagine, or you can't imagine, I couldn't until um, I was there. It was just so incredibly high. So um, I was initially taken to what was the psychiatric ward. I have no idea whether it was a psychiatric ward or not, but that's certainly what it was. And there was numbers, uh, you know, grand numbers of people who had been severely injured or who had really terrible nervous breakdowns um, um, that they wanted me to see and evaluate. The embassy strategies were was to get everybody out back to their home countries as soon as possible. Um, they had broken legs, some people were paralyzed, some people, you know, had to, you know, rib, rib damage or multiple damages, and other people had had severe nervous breakdowns. And that was the the strategy was to get another passport and to be shipped out on planes, you know, and, on um, and gurneys, whatever they could do. Um, but people were were waking up from whatever medical trauma they had, asking, you know, where's my husband, where's my wife, where's my son, where's my daughter, where's my brother, where's my sister, where are my friends? And of course, I had no idea. And I didn't know whether they were in the hospital, you know, they're, they're, their colleagues and family members and friends were in the hospital, whether they had been killed, whether they had gone home. You know, I didn't, I, you know, I couldn't answer those questions and neither could anybody else. So you can imagine the bedlam and the chaos and the psychological trauma that was going on and most people didn't want to leave. Most people, if they were too sick, they really had no choice. I mean, sick being injured, um, they really had no choice. But most people were saying, you know, asking my advice, you know, what should I do? Should I get up and, you know, and they had no hotel and they had no money. And so they were very, 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 the worst kind of vulnerability you could imagine because if they were swept away in the tsunami, they didn't have usually their ID. They may not have their ID on them. They may not have credit cards on them. You know, they may have money in the pocket. They didn't have their passports. And the government was saying, leave. And they were saying, well, what should I do? They want me on a plane tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, or tonight. So the trauma of the separation and the, you know, and thinking about their worst fear that people might be dead, um, and you know, just being separated and not knowing, was you know creating mass hysteria. Nobody knew how to deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with it either. I mean, there's no there's no concrete saying, well, then you got to do this and this and this. It was a matter of, well, are you going to defy the, what the country is? is your, your, your home country is telling you, you know, can you get a passport and defy them? 
and how are you going to pay for a hotel? Where are you going to go? Where in? Where are you going to start? I mean, I was trying to describe what was going on in the lobby, but <clears throat> which was difficult to do, you know, because I, I sort of kind of myself didn't have words for that. Um, and of course, people just confronting what the likelihood was, you know, that people were coming in and they were getting information on the TV. Um, which was in all the rooms. As I said, it was a pretty snazzy hospital. Um, what, you know, how rare it was to survive, and most people died. And um, so that what they were about to confront, you know, was, was not a very happy possibility. So that's what I did for about three days at the Bangkok Phuket Hospital. And, um, you know, which was a pretty much a 20-hour affair because there were so many people to see. The demand was so high. And there were some psychiatrists giving out um, um, sedatives, but, you know, there wasn't anybody to really sit down and talk. And even then, my attention was, you know, always basically going from emergency to emergency because so many people were breaking down and, and freaking out that just to have a normal conversation with somebody was almost impossible without being interrupted. Um, after the hospital cleared out and people had made their various decisions about what they were going to do, um, the hospital asked me to go down to Krabi, um, which was about three hours away, and a town where uh, a, a morgue had been set up in the lo- one of the local monasteries. Um, it had been about six days since the tsunami, and uh, bodies from Phuket were being sent to Bangkok, but the bodies in Krabi were, were, were being kept there. And people were in the process of doing uh, identifications. And they wanted me to go down to the hospital there because nobody had evaluated the the Western patients there for their trauma, which was very easy to evaluate because it was, by definition, you know, severe and off the charts. So when I went down there, again, their hospital was filled with a, a lobby of people trying to do the same thing. It also had tons of mattresses in it because so many ties had been displaced and had nowhere to go. Um, and the Westerners were you know, flying in from all over the world. And again, the survivors were all busy at the computer and then trying to head over to the morgue, um, which was a makeshift watt, which was a watt and a makeshift morgue, um, and trying to get in to uh, match numbers on the piece of paper that they had collected with a body. Um, it's very difficult, almost impossible for me to describe, you know, the scene inside the morgue with bodies deteriorating and rotting in the tropical heat. And I won't go into the gory detail of that, but suffice it to say that many people have asked me if I've had nightmares <coughs> about that. My main uh, response was not so much visual, but just the, the, the incredible smell of, of rotting bodies and having to be in that room you know, walking up and down the aisles. You know, the forensic team basically all had kind of space outfits on with masks. But the people who were going in for body identification, we had we had surgical masks on that was smeared with um, uh, menthol ointment, but nothing really could prepare anybody for that experience. Um, the kind of good news was that the people who were looking for bodies were able to a lot of them were able to identify them so they could be either cremated there or brought home. And meanwhile, what was so incredibly powerful was seeing all the monks, the forest monks, um, 
in their saffron robes. They were doing a lot of funeral chanting outside the morgue, you know, at least twice a day. Um, the chant of impermanence, you know, that the Buddha, that, that that's chanted at every funeral. Um, and then uh, chants relating to uh, bestowing merit on the dead and wishing them a good rebirth and hoping for their calm and peaceful states of mind. And it was a very haunting, very quite moving experience to be inside the morgue, you know, with the monks chanting outside and remind, you know, as a reminder for all those in grief and mourning and, um, you know, in this tragic circumstance, whether they were, you know, Westerners or Thais, um, because the melody is so haunting, I'll chant it at the end, but the, you know, the, the words of it, you know, all, all conditioned phenomena are, based, are impermanent and, you know, they rise and pass away. Um, and, and the beings who realize this on the deepest level, you know, attain peace and basically the bliss of, 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 of the deathless. And, of course, you know, with death confronting you in the face and, you know, that irrevocable loss and separation to be reminded of what the Buddha uh, taught us and why, you know, why we sit here. We sit here with our breath rising and passing away. We sit here with itches rising and passing away. We, listen, we sit here with the talk rising and passing away. Um, everything rising and passing away, including, you know, what the Buddha taught us to reflect every day and I did in the monastery, you know, death comes with, the three death reflections, death comes without warning, which it certainly did that day in, in Thailand and in Indonesia and places uh, in Malaysia, different places around Southeast Asia. Death comes without warning because it was just so swift, those three massive waves that came and that was it. Um, and then uh, the second, uh, the second, Reflection is this body will become a corpse, you know. This body that, and and again, just being confronted with corpses galore, you know, everywhere. There were so many corpses, by the way, is that they couldn't all fit in the monastery. Some of them were just outside the monastery, and there weren't enough body bags for the thousands of people that they found, and they were waiting for them to be flown in from different countries. So, you know, the, the visual image of this body will become a corpse, you know, was, was very apparent. You know, um, people in bathing suits and swim, swimwear, you know, alive one minute and then dead the next. So that's the second death reflection that the Buddha recommended that we contemplate every day. Um, um, and the third death reflection, which I'm blocking on now, which no, no surprise that <laughs> these things, um, uh, which I will remember by the end of the talk. This, uh, let's see, death comes without warning, this body will become a cr- Oh, and that uh, all that is mine and beloved to me will be separated, that I will be separated from. Okay, so, you know, that, that's, you know, and that's the main, no, you know, no matter what we have, you know, our bodies, our eyesight, our hearing, our friends, our family, whatever it is, you know, we will be separated, you know, we'll become otherwise, you know, all that we consider mine will become otherwise. So again, you know, you, say, you know, my husband, my sister, you know, my friends, my daughter, my son, you know, the, there's a separate, you know, there's this moment, whether they saw the bodies or not, 
of this separation. Um, the, the, the Watts, which are monasteries around, were doing about 10 cremations a day, uh, around the clock, basically, mostly for Thai people. You know, who lost business. You know, if the families weren't wiped out, the you know, businesses um, and uh, houses, and then Westerners who chose to have bodies cremated. Um, and that was also very powerful, going to the funerals. You know, literally, people lined up waiting for to collect ashes while the next body was there because there was about over 5,000 dead bodies and over 3,000 um, missing bodies. So that's a lot of bodies to account for, um, as I said, especially in the tropical heat. I hope I'm not being too gross, but it's hard to tell the story without that. Gil said I should try to be moderate, <laughs> um, and I am. Um, most Westerners, and you know, we're very lucky that we, we're getting Buddhist training here, because most Westerners, you know, felt very betrayed by what what had happened. You know, how could it happen that? You know, one minute we were on the buffet line, next minute my husband's missing, or my wife, or whatever, um, or my kids went on vacation, and what happened? You know, and this was very difficult to deal with, people's outrage. But as Buddhist practitioners, you know, in our training, you know, we're expected to um, train with these ideas in mind, with with the fact that death come, can come at any moment, with the fact that this body will become a corpse, with the fact that you know we will be separated, and we we don't have to necessarily do those reflections any moment. Our meditation teaches that through the cycle of things rising and passing away, rising and passing away. That's what we notice. Um, and so it was very interesting, you know, kind of being in this Buddhist country with Buddhists and 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 Westerners, kind of side by side. And the and the Buddhists, because 96% or 97% are Buddhists, you know, we're in shock, we're in grief, you know, we're, you know, experiencing, you know, the deepest levels of shock. But what was happening with the Westerners was another layer of that, which was the feeling of betrayal and outrage and how could this happen, as if the experience happened to them personally. And what was so interesting was being among the Buddhists, you know, and they're not necessarily practitioners, by the way. Most of the Buddhists in Thailand aren't practitioners, but they're so influenced by the Buddhist teachings. Um, and they're, you know, that impermanence is part of their everyday life, and there's crematorium everywhere, and they go to the more, they go to the Wats every day, where most Wats, by the way, have cremation sites in the monasteries. And if they don't, they're very close by. So the idea of death coming swiftly, or death coming at any time, or that we will be separated, you know, it was more of a reality in their consciousnesses than it was, you know, from our societies that we come from, where death is more disguised, death is more, you know, that death is separate, and if it comes at old age, there's more of an acceptance, but if it comes at a young age, they feel like something's wrong. And that was that was not predominant, you know. Of course, there was the, the you know the parents of you know, mourning. I wish I had gone first, and there was those lamentations. But in terms of feeling that something went wrong in the cosmic system, 
those those are things that I didn't hear, you know, feeling betrayed, you know, feeling severely angry, because there's more of a sense of this is what the Buddha taught. You know, this is what binds, you know, every human being on the planet. You know, the Buddha said everybody's tears are are salty and everybody's blood is, is red. You know, and so there was a sense of, you know, we're all in this together. You know, the Westerners, you know, were just more, you know, they still had the shock, they still had the grief, but there was still this bubbling anger of, you know, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? It's, there's a kind of unfairness um, that I find very sad because it wasn't the time for me to start, le- you know, it wasn't my role to be lecturing, obviously. It was there to witness and to be with them in their, in their worst kind of nightmare moments. But what I realized was, you know, how what a fortunate kind of edge we have as Buddhist practitioners because, you know, this is what we train our hearts, you know, to open up to uh, in, in the moments of, of pleasurable moments, in the, in the moments of painful moments without resistance and without grasping. And what this allows us to do, you know, is to be there for those moments in a way that I just didn't see with people who weren't trained in that direction. People had faith and people prayed, and there was that notion um, of faith in a lot of people. Um, and, and I don't want to say that this was 100% of every Westerner there, because it wasn't. But there was a theme that I could, I could say, um, you know, in a, in a, in a n- notable difference between what I was seeing and hearing, um, between the different between the different cultures, which you know was was very difficult. I mean, who, you know, the worst nightmare of being ripped away from your family, ripped away from your children, especially being in a different culture. But then that added layer of suffering was so painful to see, um, which is what we do with our minds, because what the Buddha said was when we confront reality and we really open our hearts to reality it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt but it means we don't add the layer of resistance and anger and aversion which which the Buddha said was the real pain I mean the pain is bad enough but the optional suffering we add to it you know is even is even worse Um, which (laughs) at that age where I need my glasses Um, I felt very fortunate to be to be able to be there with people because I felt that my practice um, over the years had given me an edge, and the edge was that thank you Amy, that I I had the capacity, as difficult as it was, to to witness with people what was going on. A lot of people couldn't go into the morgue. It wasn't my favorite moment of the day when I had to go in, believe me, um, many times a day, many times a night. Um, and it did take a lot of emotional and mental preparation on my part to do it. But I felt that there was a maturity in my practice that allowed me to be able to do that, that allowed me you know, to, to be able to be there through those moments with people as they were hysterical and collapsing and screaming in their horror. 
um, of what they what they were confronting. And uh, so at those moments, you know, I felt very grateful to have a loving kindness practice and a compassion practice to be able to to do that in my heart for people and for myself and for all beings. You know, what we're all in for. It wasn't like these people were the exception and they were confronting their worst nightmare. Their situation was pretty damn terrible um, because it was such a massive confrontation. But it's not like they were the exception. It's like they had to confront it and we don't. It's like this is what's in store for everybody. Um, And so I felt that my training and my practice was able to put me inside that, not as not as an outsider, not as kind of the professional expert, even though it was very good to be able to say, you know, I'm a doctor, and that was very soothing to a lot of people um, because they weren't getting that attention. They were getting more bureaucratic attention um, and be able to sit with people. But I did it not as a psychologist. You know, I really did it more as a, as a, as a practitioner in my in my training um, of being able to just sit and not and not react and not respond and to do it you know to the extent that I was able with you know not that I didn't have my moments of course I did but to the extent that I was able to be able to be a witness to what was happening in that particular area at the country and at that time, oh, 10:30. Okay, um, I'm gonna. I thought I'd leave uh, 15 minutes for questions, if, if if you have any about what the experience was. Yes. Actually, uh, let's use the mic. Microphones. Thank you. I'm curious. Um, what you learned from your experience with Ajahn Chah's disciples, comparing it to uh, Westerners just going into a Dharma center on the weekend, uh, how was your experience there with Ajahn Chah's disciples? Uh, what difference, what comparison could you make? Yeah. Well, um, you know, of course, coming to a Dharma center, you know, we do it you know, kind of by the hour, you know, or by the day, or by the you know ten day chunk. When you're in a monastery, you know, you're, 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 um, on a long-term basis as I was, um, you're practicing different reflections and meditation practices, you know, throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month. And, you know, you're hearing the training of, you know, th- this is true, you know, the, the day cycles, your body cycles, you know, your life cycles, the meal cycles, you know, showering cycles, bathing cycles. And, you know, that that's pounded into your head, you know, all the time. And death reflection, which we consider like, kind of like, you know, we don't want to think about that. We want to think about loving kindness practices here. And I'm not sure how many teachers have done a lot of death reflection practices. But the the monks, as I, as I said, you know, the monks have total loving kindness, but they're, but, but, in total compassion, but their attitude is very unsentimental. It's like, this is what the Buddha taught. And so, while they could be very comforting to people and, you know, extreme, you know, with pure hearts, and my teachers too, because I went to see one of my teachers right after and spent time in his monastery uh, just to recover before I went back to see my husband, 
you know, he could, he couldn't have been sweeter and nicer, but he was also, you know, this is what I've been telling you. You know, th- this is it. This is what I've been telling you. You know, if you are born, you receive the karma of death. And death comes at any moment. It comes without warning. You will be separated that for all that is beloved to you. You know, and um, it it can come swiftly. It could come. And death can come slowly. You know it, and but you know um, this body will become a corpse. And this is what I, you know. This is what I've been telling you. So it was a very beautiful experience to be with these pure beings, who, as I said, were were totally loving and totally uh, compassionate, and their wisdom was right there. You know, this this is it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes. I'm curious as to where, uh, what's it like now? Is that better? Uh, the question, the question, is this okay, by the way? When I, the question was, what, what's it like now for me? Um, or? The, the state of how it is over there. I don't know. I, I left Thailand about six weeks ago. Um, and I think most of the people who were there, uh, in terms of identification, probably have, you know, left, they, they were leaving when I left, which is close to about two weeks after, because you couldn't identify bodies anymore. They were too deteriorated, and they were just doing DNA testing. And so there was, the, my responsibility of taking people in and out of the morgues was over, and if they were able to give a number and they wanted to wait around for a team, uh, a forensic team, uh, more often than not the Israeli team, Unfortunately, they have the most experience in identifying bodies because of all the terrorism. You could wait. Um, and so there were people still waiting when I was there, but the identification process was over, basically, because you couldn't, you couldn't recognize anybody anymore. So I know there's a massive DNA testing going on there uh, because you couldn't tell ties from Americans, from Americans, from Swiss, Swiss from Italians, you know. So the, the forensic teams were just busy taking DNA samples and then encouraging people who had missing people to send in D- DNA samples. So there were DNA, you know, testing centers all over the place. So I don't know what's happening now. I imagine it's a massive bureaucratic nightmare because tons of money has come in and there's probably a lot of corruption and the people who are supposed to be getting it probably aren't. But... You know, that's probably happening now. Bureaucratic meetings and decisions and things like that. The usual. <laughs> the usual samsaric mess. <laughs> any, other qu- any other questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering about... Um the issue of grief therapy for children, teenagers, mm-hmm. mothers and fathers that have lost their their loved ones. Yeah, is it if that's an ongoing issue that's going to be Yeah, they're they're dealing with that in Thailand now. As I said, you know, people don't go to psychologists and psychiatrists in Thailand. Unless psychiatrists they would go to if they were, you know, psychotic or schizophrenic and they would get medication. But they go to monks. They don't go. They don't go. It's not like a professional thing. I did meet some teams of psychiatrists that came in later. 
you know, asking me what to do because they don't deal, you know, they don't know how to deal with anything from a psychological level. They were like, post-traumatic stress, grief counseling, oh, that's interesting because they've been trained from the medical model. So I had done some grief work with the people in the hospitals who had been working like 24 hours a day for weeks on end or 20 hours a day. Um, and encouraging them to get trained in those models and there were groups coming in to do that. Um, certainly the people I spoke to who were going back home, you know, they if they had religious communities, I encouraged them to uh, take advantage of the source of support they can get uh, there and then, you know, to seek their own counselors. It's really sad in our society, though, that in grief you get isolated and you have to go into therapy. You know what I mean? It's really sad. And it, one of the beautiful things I saw in Thailand, like, you know, grief is, is out there. It's You don't have to be isolated and your your thoughts and experience aren't so private. You know, it's shared. It's shared. It's out, you know, the funerals are outside. You know, it's it's a tropical culture. So, you know, there's not so, not so much just what we have in terms of isolating ourselves, just even by walls. You know, the meditation halls usually have a roof and they're open on, you know, four sides. So, you know, even the physical, I, physical structures, you know, kind of reflect the inner structures that people have. You know, you don't have to be alone in your isolation, you know, in your grief. But in the West, a lot of the questions people ask me is, what, what could I expect when I go home? And do I have to keep repeating the stories? And how long will it take? Which, of course, you know, you don't have to keep repeating the stories. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of psychological theories about trauma where you shouldn't relive the trauma over and over again and that you're not there to entertain people with the stories um, and you shouldn't feel compelled to say what happened if you don't feel like it. And, you know, groups, I would certainly encourage people to go through groups because in groups you do get the sense of sharing your experience rather than feeling it's a one-on-one isolation with a therapist. You know, it's a psychological problem. You know, it's the problem. <laughs> You know, it is the problem that we have with life is it's going to end, you know. So it's not a unique thing that you got to go into therapy for. But I wasn't, I mean, you know, go to therapy if you want to go to therapy. I wasn't trying to convince people out of it, you know what I mean? And it's certainly the model that we all understand. So if that's what people wanted to do. But I also encouraged, you know, reliance on religious institutions and support that people can offer from that perspective and, you know, uh, attending attending groups because at least in a group you can share your response and people's reactions and they're not so you know that that you get the context of what the cycle of grief is and you're not alone in it yes uh, I wanted to thank you for talking about this difficult subject for mm-hmm. Westerners and uh, could you compare the well we call it the mourning process Often, could you compare how uh, the mourning process of Thais with that of Westerners? Thais have uh, tremendous faith um, in the Buddha's uh, teaching that dedicating merit, uh, good deeds, on behalf of the memory of the deceased, whether you have a body or not, gets transferred. So many people would would be making offerings of meals to to the monks and. Or uh, if it wasn't food, you know, requ- requisites, uh, the me- medicine or, or money or um, um, supplies that the monks might need. And, and dedicating the merit 
uh, to that to their to their loved ones, which is a really beautiful thing to see that in response the generosity is a response to grief. So that's a beautiful um, faith that people have um, that our good deeds can benefit those who have moved on, um, and that's very different. I mean, we we do give uh, you know there are religious institutions that believe in giving donations and stuff in memory. So it's not like that practice is not established here. But it's a massive practice in Thailand. People are constantly coming to the monasteries, constantly, you know, year year long year round on the memory uh, on the anniversary of people's deaths, you know, um and, and making offerings to the monks and uh which is just part of monastery life. You know, the funerals are at monasteries. Uh, chanting goes on at monasteries. Dedication of merit goes on at monasteries. You know, all the time, not just for this horrible tragedy. Um, you know, I we we mark the anniversary of someone's death more privately. Um, the again, the ties do it more publicly and with you know huge acts of generosity, which is very beautiful to see. Yeah, and the monks do their chanting. Yeah. Yes. I have a question about uh, a, a death. I mean, a death of someone that is is very important to you in your life. And from Buddhist perspective, then how do you think about that without suffering? How do you accept the loss or or whatever is happening to you at that moment with that person? And what is is that way in a Buddhist sense and what do you mean by adding on to the The, the adding on to the suffering is, is our reactivity to it. You know, is wishing it didn't happen and being angry and the, the mental responses of it. The, um, and the emotional overlay we put on it. They said, you know, the, the, the grief that's happening, you know, the, the pain in the body and the pain in the heart and the pain in the mind, you know, is is the truth of what's happening. And it's usually our thoughts and our resistance and our hatred and our anger and our bitterness you know, that adds the layer of dimension of suffering that the Buddha said was you know, optional, that we can... And, as, and, and the, the role that mindfulness plays in that is not that those thoughts shouldn't come up, but our awareness of them, our awareness of them is a, is a purification process. And that... To be able to say, you know, that you know, this is anger. You know, this is um, a- aversion to what's happening. You know, uh, reduces reduces the suffering, reduces the suffering because then we're not the anger, then we're not the aversion, we're the witness to it, and then gradually, like everything else, it arises and passes away. And when it does, is none of our business because we don't know, we can't control it. Which is the basic Buddhist teaching is that we don't have any control. You know, and that we have to, you know, constantly surrender. And our method of surrendering is through mindfulness. Does that make sense? What you say makes sense, but uh, this initial part of your of your body visceral reaction, mm-hmm. the sadness, the yeah. the suffering that you have, tremendous. That. Mm-hmm. Now that is suffering also, and right. not, not adding on to it. And so I don't understand this distinction. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, just suff- just knowing you're suffering is a huge, you know, mental noting of just this is suffering. You know, this is pain. 
um, pain in the heart, pain in the mind, pain in the body. Uh, and it's not that it doesn't arise. It does arise. And, and to understand that uh, as the first noble truth, this is the suffering of change. Not from an intellectual level, but from a moment-to-moment level of, 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 you know, this, this is, this is a painful moment. And the projections into the future and, and everything the Buddha said just adds to that pain. It's a very difficult path to negotiate. It's not in the head. It's not that you can talk yourself out of mourning, talk yourself out of suffering, talk yourself out of anger. That's not the idea. The, the point is that our responsibility, the Buddha said, is to know, is to know those experiences and to know they are impermanent. So, you know, people came to me angry or, or bitter or whatever. It's, you know, it's, those are normal reactions from especially our Western mind. It doesn't, it's not, we're not conditioned, you know, in the first noble truth. We're conditioned in the denial of the first noble truth of suffering. You know, that's our conditioning. So, you know, as I said, I wasn't there to lecture about you're in denial or whatever. This is what happens to all human bodies. It was to witness, you know, to, to be there and not react with them. To, oh, you're right, this is horrible. You know, um, and get into the emotional swing of it with them. You know, it was to bear witness to it as a, you know, as an, as a reality. Mm-hmm. So what, what's next? Oh, this is the end? This is the end? Okay, okay, good. Alright, just wanted to, just, wa- just wanted to make sure. Okay. Um, this is, this is probably considered sacrilegious for a lay person to be chanting, uh, uh, chanting, uh, but I do want to dedicate any merit that comes from our time together this morning to to uh, the victims and the survivors all over the planet who have suffered, you know, losses, um, and just to the human condition of you know this is what what we're all in store for, you know, death coming at any moment. So this is a chant um, that it's usually uh, chanted. Not usually, you know, always chanted at every, every, every Buddhist, every Buddhist, uh, funeral. So the traditional way is just to put your hands together. And, uh, I encourage you to, if you want to dedicate merit, uh, to anybody you know personally, uh, this is a chance to do it. You know, may any, the merit of my life, uh, and the good deeds I've done, you know, be for the benefit of fill in the blank from all beings to beings that are personal to you. Oh, okay. Really, without bending it? Sorry. Okay. Anicca Vata Sankara Upadua yetamino, Upakitua niruchanti, Te sang upasimo suko, Anicha wata sankara, Upadua yetamino, Upakitua niruchanti, Te sang upasimo suko, Anicha wata sankara, Upadawa yadamino, 
Upakituwa nirutanti te sang upasamosuko. So thank you very much. I wish you all well. I wish all beings well. Thank you. Thank you.